Today we're continuing in our study in the book of James. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one as a gift. Uh, they're found out in the foyer. Uh, there's a bookshelf out there under information, and we would love to give you a free gift of a Bible to take home and, and to begin to read. Um, it's also found in your bulletin. It'll be found on the screen as well. And let me, let me read what James says from chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. He writes this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Today he's talking about wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. Wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. And if you were going to place the book of James in the Old Testament, you would properly place it in what's called wisdom literature. Like so the Psalms and the Proverbs and that kind of thing. This is a wisdom-type book, and his focus is so much on wisdom, and it's a call not only to wisdom in terms of knowledge, but instead to wise living. And that really is what wisdom is in the Bible, in terms of what biblical wisdom actually is. It's not only to receive um, knowledge or information about what's wise, but it's to receive that and then to walk in it, right? To not only be a hearer of God's word, but a doer also. And so James is continually throughout this this letter showing us what wisdom looks like. And today he's talking about there's a wisdom that is from above and there is a wisdom from below. And he's going to continue challenging us in extreme ways. This last week in our gospel community that I'm a part of, we, uh, it's kind of funny because we discussed the sermons and yet I'm not the leader of the group. And so it's kind of, it's kind of funny, right? Because I'm not leading the discussion, yet I preach the sermon, and it's this awkward moment, and then I end up taking over the conversation anyway, and then they, anyway. So this last week, I actually was leading, and we were talking about how challenging uh, the book of James is, and, and a guy in the group said this, he said, throughout James, I've had to remind myself the distinction between guilt and condemnation on the one hand, and conviction, Right? And so James challenges us, and he convicts us, but I want to remind you that he doesn't, he's not condemning those of us who are in Christ. In Christ, you can't be condemned. You're forgiven, you're loved, you're accepted, but the Holy Spirit, if you're a true follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction at times to our lives to grow us, to strengthen us, but he doesn't condemn us. It says in Romans 8.1, in Christ there is therefore now no, what, condemnation. But he convicts us, and he disciplines those he loves, the Bible says. If you're in Christ, we stand in grace, but he brings these intense challenges. 
Our passage today is flowing from the previous uh, part of chapter 3, where he's discussing the tongue, the use of our words, and how important that is, that it can, it's like a spark that sets a, a forest on fire, and it's powerful. Dan Doriani is um, a commentator that I've been reading throughout this series, and he says this, one minute we use our mouth or our tongue to bless God, and the next we use it to curse men. One minute we tell our wife how much we love her, and the next minute we castigate one of our children for a small offense. You're always late. You make the family look bad when we show up late for church. (laughs) Might be applicable to some of you today. I don't know. Who has not been challenged by the book of James? Raise your hand if you've been here. Who has not been challenged to the core? I have been so challenged as we have studied this. And the tongue alone... Just the issue of the tongue and the use of our words has shown me, and I hope it's shown you, how much we need Jesus Christ, how humble we have to be before him. They're like, I can't even control my tongue, as James says. Even though I use my mouth as a living to teach and so forth, I have trouble controlling my own words. That issue alone should bring us to humility and to realize how much we need Jesus, that we could never earn salvation. It's all grace, James is telling us, but over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow, and we are strengthened, and God changes us, but can we admit that it's often slow, and that it's often messy? Can we admit that? When we moved to Cincinnati, Becky and I did in October of 1997, And in December of 1997, my dad passed away. My dad had owned a piece of property with like five acres on it, and he was an outdoorsman, and he loved trees, and he would plant trees throughout this property. So he planted a ton of walnut trees. I actually joined him in doing that. He planted oak trees. He planted poplar trees. And he just loved trees and was was building like a a park, in a sense, in in the five acres that we had. And so when he passed away and we moved into this new home in Cincinnati to honor him, I planted an oak tree in the backyard, in the corner of the backyard. And it was a small sapling, and I planted it in the back in his honor. And we lived there for nearly six years, but like every once in a while, I would kind of pay attention to the tree and go out and look at it. And I would think to myself, like, this tree has not grown at all. And it's been a year. This tree has not grown at all. And it's, it's like two years, three years. At the end of the six years, I looked at this oak, and I was like, I really don't know if it's grown more than three or four inches. But now that we've been gone for 15 years, and when we go back and travel back, and we go to that house, and we always do, we drive by our old house, and we kind of creep on the house and walk around the backyard and kind of look around. They even let us go in once. It's very weird, we know. And so, but I go look at this tree, and it has grown. It's grown immensely. It's becoming an oak. It's, it's almost 20-something years old now. It's becoming a mature oak tree. You see the growth, and this is what James is saying. It's messy. It's slow, but the gospel, if you truly follow Jesus, takes root, and he changes us slowly but surely. And the main idea that I want us to see this is this this morning. The truly wise person's life, the truly wise person's life is marked by humility peace, and love over and against bitter envy, divisions, and selfish ambition. The truly wise person in life is not someone who just has knowledge, but their life is marked by certain fruit, certain characteristics. Humility, peace, and love versus 
bitter envy, divisions, and selfish ambition. We're going to follow the text, just kind of James's logic as we go through, and there's three things he's talking about this morning. He calls out the wise, he then talks about wisdom that's from below, and then the wisdom that is from the above. So first of all, he calls out the wise, calling out the wise. James 3.13, he says this, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Douglas Moo is another commentator that I've been reading. He says this, James asked people who think they have spiritual understanding or wisdom and insight into spiritual matters to step forward, and then James assesses these people's claim to wisdom, not in theological terms, how much doctrine do they know, but in practical terms. Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility, with that which comes with wisdom. So for James, true wisdom equals doing good out of a love for God, not out of compulsion only, but out of love for God and love for our neighbor. True wisdom flows out of love for God, and true wisdom is a humbled heart, someone that has taken stock of their spiritual condition and realizes that even though you've been a Christian maybe for 25, 35, 45 years, that you stand only on grace and not your own righteousness. The truly wise follower of Jesus among us in this room today who's walked with God and has even accomplished great things for God will know that their bedrock, their foundation, the platform upon which they stand spiritually is not their own goodness and righteousness. It's Jesus. It's all grace and therefore humility. Humility is one of the primary attributes that comes. Are you among the wise? He's calling out the wise. And he's saying, step forward, let's assess you. It's not only in how much you know, and James is not knocking doctrine. He's not saying doctrine is not important. He's not saying the scriptures aren't important, the truth is not important, or that theology is not important. He's not saying that. What he's saying, though, is ultimately, if you have all this knowledge but are not a doer of it in a practical sense, and you're not living out God's truth in real time in life, you're not actually as wise as you think you are. In fact, you may not be wise at all. And so he's asking, are any of you wise among you? So he's asking you today, step forward. Anybody wise? Now after that, we're all like, no, no, I'm not wise. <laughs> I'm not wise at all. There's no way I'm going to go forward for that kind of assessment. But what I want you to realize is this. The truth is, as you're driving down the road listening to talk radio and you hear some of the nonsense going on in the world, you're like, I'm pretty wise. As you're on social media, on Twitter, and you're reading and evaluating what's happening in the world, you say to yourself, I'm pretty wise. As you have discussion with other people at work and so forth, you re there is a sense in which we do find ourselves thinking that we're wise. So would you acknowledge your own heart? When I hear the word wise, I think of an old sage, right, with a long beard, kind of a Gandalf-looking character. He's sitting in a room. It's filled with books and <clears throat> smoking a pipe, maybe, just waiting for people to come in and go, oh, wise one, you know, what is the answer to life? You know, just that kind of philosophical ideas. And there's a wisdom in that. But for James and really the entire Bible, especially books like Proverbs, wisdom is found in practical living. Godliness Biblical wisdom is found not only in what you know, 
but it's found pressed into the details of everyday life. We love the idea of grandeur. We love the idea of ultimate wisdom, like, again, flowing beard, and my wife won't let me grow one, but like, you know, really wise-looking person and sage. But real wisdom is found in pursuing God with joy even when you lose your job and nothing is on the horizon. Living out your faith in that moment. It's being content and patient when your house is filled with the pungent aroma of a filled diaper. (laughs) And your child is screaming. There, that's where you find wisdom. It's, it's being patient with your roommate who's driving you crazy with their loud music and their messes that they won't pick up. It's how you talk to your friends. It's how you talk to your spouse, your kids, or even the person that's wronged you, your enemy. It's found in your heart attitude and your actions with the homeless person that you see every week on your drive to work or the homeless person in front of Costco or the immigrants that you know. It's in what comes out of your mouth when you hit your thumb with a hammer. (laughs) It's found in the details. It's pressed in the realities of life, James says. And these are the kind of issues he's been talking about. It's found in whether you show preference to the rich over the poor. It's found with your mouth. It's found in the details of life. The next thing James presses into is this idea of there is a wisdom from below. And he says this, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James says, if any of you are bold enough to step forward and say, I am wise, I am among the wise, but you have bitter envy, you have selfish ambition, you you have this kind of thing going into your heart, you're being false to the truth. And this word for jealousy or envy is the Greek word zealous, and what that sounds like what? Zeal, a zealot, right. And so there's a a positive connotation to being a zealot, that you're zealous for the truth, zealous or jealous for uh, the love of your life or protecting your children or protecting your church or whatever. Like, there is a good jealousy for God. God is a jealous God, it says. So jealousy and zeal is a good thing, but that's not what he has in mind. He calls it bitter envy, and it's referring to this sort of self-oriented desire to possess things that are not yours. Envious, jealous in a wrong sense. Selfish ambition, he says, is worldly wisdom, but is not from above, it's from below. Not ambition, selfish ambition. He's not calling out ambition. It's not wrong to want to be ambitious in your work, ambitious at school, ambitious uh, to be a, a, a sincere follower of Jesus. It's not ambition. It's not hard work. It's selfish ambition. It's It's not enough to simply do good. It's not uh, simply enough to excel at school. I have to be the best. It's not enough to simply excel at work. I have to be better than you are. I have to crush you. I have to beat you. I have to win the competition. Selfish ambition. And hinted in this is this problem of divisiveness and strife as James unpacks this. In Galatians 5, Paul lists several attributes that are in opposition to the fruit of of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5, are things like this. Love, 
joy, peace. You maybe know these, right? Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. It goes on and on. Self-control. And the opposite are things like this. He mentions sexual immorality and impurity and idolatry, and then he hits us right in the stomach by saying enmity, hostility, strife, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, and envy, bitter envy, selfish ambition. James calls this a kind of wisdom. It's worldly. It, it, it looks good to the world. You're getting ahead. You're, 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 you're making money. You, you maybe even become a billionaire like Theranos, but it's worldly. It's, it's, it's a worldly wisdom that's built on nothing but selfish ambition and lies. It's the wisdom of Bernie Madoff, Elizabeth Holmes. It's worldly wisdom. It's not, it's not from above, it's from below. And it's easy to point at the extreme examples of a Bernie Madoff, but what about us as we look in the mirror? And what about the people that we follow or our tribe and culture? Can you be honest enough to look at your own hypocrisy or the hypocrisy of people that you follow? And then in chapter 3, verse 16, James says this, where there is jealousy or envy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every kind of vile practice. Where you find jealousy, the bitter kind, the wrong kind, and selfish ambition in your heart or in other people's hearts or in a culture, you will find a vice and division and every kind of vile practice, he says. It's like a root. Bitter envy and jealousy is like a root to many, many other sins. He says, Dan Doriani writes this, the envious think their identity and worth is derived from their status or their possessions. I must be better than you. I must have more than you. As long as someone else has what they think they deserve, they're miserable. It could even be for a good thing. <laughs> Somebody after first service was honest enough with me uh, to say this. She said, I have adult children that have walked away from the Lord. <laughs> and when I hear of my friends and family that have adult children that are living the good life and walking with God and living in a peaceful way and making good decisions in life, I find myself getting jealous. And it's like a root. She, and I said, yeah, and I, I get that. I've wrestled with that at times myself. Like, but like, look. And she said, no, it's, it's truly, it's wrong. I need to call it for what it is because it's a root. It's leading to other sins in my heart and life. There's jealousy. I'm, I'm, I'm backing up from those people. And, and there's nothing wrong with them. Their, their children are just being blessed. But because I keep wondering, well, why not me or why not my kids? And she said, I'm falling into envy and I've got to call it for what it is. As long as someone else has what they think they deserve, they're miserable. Envious thoughts lead to a host of evils, boasting, quarreling, grasping, criticism of rivals. Let me read that again. Boasting, quarreling, grasping, criticism of rivals. Envy leads us to rejoice rather than grieve at the sorrows of others. It prevents us from loving them. Ambition that is selfish and envy breed restlessness instead of contentment. But godly wisdom brings peace and righteousness. Boasting, quarreling, grasping, criticism of, of rivals that is personal, rushing to judgment, when at all costs, 
I believe this is a word that the followers of Jesus in Chandler, Arizona, in the United States of America, in 2019, desperately need to hear. Look at me. You need to hear this today. <laughs> I don't mean to offend you, but I don't care if you are on the conservative spectrum of things in culture and life, or you're on the far left of things, or whether you're like me and perfectly moderate in all things, perfectly wise, able to see in every direction the perfect balance. You need to hear this. Many of us are concerned about the state of things in our nation. Many of us are concerned about the state of things in our family, our culture, what we see around us, and we are right to be concerned. And the conservative spectrum of, of politics and culture and church, we have a certain perspective. And, and those of us on the left of culture and politics and the church have a certain perspective. And as we deal with one another, as we talk, there is a temptation to fall into bitter rivalries and anger and division. Many of us are concerned about the state of things in our culture. People on the right are concerned about the state of our culture. People on the left, progressives, are concerned about the state of our culture. And moderates are concerned. You have convictions. You have knowledge. Listen, you may even have the truth. You may even be on the right side of issues on the right or the left. You can, you can be all about what is true and righteous and good and morally pure, and you can be all about social justice and loving the poor and caring for the poor. And Paul says what in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? If you have not what? Church, come on, you know your Bible better than that. If you have not love, you're what? Nothing. You're a resounding gong. You're a noise. You've got nothing spiritually if you don't have love, Paul says. I'm a member of a Facebook group that's very interesting. It's for pastors only. Every single pastor in that group is committed to the exact same theological conclusions, convictions, and doctrine. You have to be in order to be a member of this particular group. And we throw out different ideas. People will present different ideas and like, what about this? Sometimes it's practical issues, you know, like uh, I'm struggling with this. What would you guys do in this situation? But sometimes we fray into cultural issues and theological issues and there's a minority and it's only minority, but it's interesting. It, it often devolves to name calling, uh, motive questioning, and throwing of stones at one another. And this is a group where every single person in the group is committed to Orthodox Christianity in the exact same theological distinctives, not broadly, specifically. And there is a way to contend for the truth that is gracious and disagree with one another. And if there's a place to argue among brothers, this is it. And it's not wrong to contend for truth, to debate and argue. It's not wrong. But it even in this group, even in this group of people totally committed to the same thing, there is often an evolution of the conversation that leads to derisive language, divisions, mean-spiritedness, and it gets very, very personal. The people throwing the rocks believe they are wise. They would not do it if they did not think they were. They believe they have wisdom. They're doing it because of wisdom. They are contending for the truth. But hear me, church, you can be 
in the truth, you can believe the truth and even have the truth and have the wisdom that's not from above that is from hell. You can be holding the truth. You can be standing on truth, believing in the truth, be about the truth, whether it's on the left side of things or the right side of things, and be filled with a wisdom that is a worldly wisdom that's actually demonic, James says, because it's divisive and it's not flowing out of love. You can be politically in the truth and have a worldly wisdom. You can be theologically on the truth. We know this to be true. James says so in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. This was a mantra in Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You do well if you believe that, but even the demons, he says, believe that, and they shudder. Do you know who has literally perfect theology besides the triune God? Demons. <laughs> they know theology perfectly. They know who God is, and they hate him. You can have perfect knowledge of God, perfect theology, perfect philosophy, perfect political stances, and if you have not love, you're nothing. And you have a wisdom that's not from above, but is hellish. There's another aspect I want us to consider. Most people with a microphone today, or a YouTube channel, or a blog, or writing books, in our culture, to get a hearing, you have to be pretty extreme at times. Do you admit that? Not always. There are moderate voices. There are thoughtful, wise, loving voices. But a lot of time, it's the loudest person with the microphone. It's the loudest blogger. It's the, the most intense, divisive person on television that gets our attention. We can't turn away. I am often watching, and my wife will say, why do you do this? They're just arguing. And my boys will walk in, why do you do this? And I don't know. I'm, I'm addicted to the argument, in a sense. And James, I think, would be warning us, be careful who you're listening to. Who are your teachers? You may say, I'm not divisive. I don't throw stones. I'm not judging. But if the only people you're listening to are filling you with judgment and division, and even among brothers and sisters in the Lord are dividing, 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 at some point you've got to say, that's probably affecting me. I, I told you guys how ever since I got back from sabbatical, I had surgery and so forth, and I finally got back to the gym, and I, I, I'm a part of a gym, it's a very intense gym, and it's great, and it's had an enormous positive impact on my body for my health and my life and stuff, but it's also a power of positive influence and a few that are interesting. I won't even call it negative, it's just interesting. So every group like this has a subculture, and what I noticed when I started going to this gym is I'm wearing the wrong shoes, okay? Because everyone in this gym is wearing a particular kind of shoes. It's a particular brand and a particular kind. They're very flat. They're for weightlifting and lifting heavy weights. And I'm wearing running shoes. And there were snide comments about, like, oh, nice shoes. You know? And their joke is, as they got to know me, it wasn't the first day, right? Like, it's like, nice shoes, man. Like, grandpa's shoes, you know, and that kind of thing. And so this last week, what do you think I did? I went out and got some shoes, man. I got to fit the culture of this gym. I've got the proper shoes. And I walked in. I was like, look at my shoes. You know, like, I did it. I finally got it. And everyone's like then making fun of me. Ah, you got the shoes. These shoes, <laughs> they're so goofy looking. I will never wear them in public. They're exactly like yours, by the way. They're the same kind. <laughs> he wears them in public. I'm being divisive right now. I'll never wear them in public. But I felt this pressure 
The Bible says, be careful who you listen to. Who are your friends? Who are your influences? Who are you listening to? We're in a cultural war. You can have a wisdom that is from above. You can have a wisdom that is from hell itself. Be careful. Be careful who you listen to. Finally, sadly, more quickly, wisdom from above. The wisdom from below is self-evident, and I don't need anyone to train me in it. Selfish ambition? Check. Got it. I know how to do that. Envy? Sure, that comes very naturally to me. Bitter jealousy? Mm-hmm, that sounds good. I'll wallow in that. But the fruit of the Spirit and what God is meaning to build in this oak of our life, this oak tree of the life he's growing, is much different. And it's also self-evident, but it, it doesn't come easily to us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Listen to what James says. But the wisdom from above is pure. It's first pure. And we can unpack that. It means holy, good, righteous, loving the truth. The gospel's truth and grace. Then he says, but it's peaceable also. It's pure. It's truthful. It's about, the, it's about righteousness, holiness, goodness, what is God's will for our life. But it's also peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Everything here is in complete contrast to the social discord caused by envy and selfish ambition. Every single one, peaceable. It's the opposite of selfish ambition and envy. Gentle. Open to reason. In the Greek, that literally means uh, to be compliant or submissive or easily persuaded. It doesn't mean your brain is mush or that you don't have any knowledge or that you're just you know, like a fool and easily persuaded in any direction. That's not what it means. It's saying, look, I'm going to engage with you and I'm going to be quick to listen, right? And slow to speak and maybe, maybe humble enough to take a posture of like, I might actually learn something from you and maybe I don't have the entire market of truth cornered. Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, loves justice, and is sincere. And he finally says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And conversely, he means by implication that there is a harvest of unrighteousness that is sown in discord by those who make discord. Look around you. Look in life. Look in our culture. Look in your own personal life. People who sow unrighteousness and discord, this is what they reap. We go back to the tongue. It seems impossible to change. Change is messy. It takes time. It seems so difficult to change. Where do we change? How do we change? Friends, we change because of the power of the gospel and looking to Jesus Christ as our example, but also the power. Jesus is the power. Jesus rose from the dead, and by the Spirit who rose him from the dead, it's the same Spirit we have that is in us to strengthen us. And it says this in Philippians 2 about Jesus. First of all, he says this, don't do anything from selfish ambition. That sounds familiar. Or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Next, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and what he means by that, he was God. He is literally God. He's God in the flesh. And even though he is God in the flesh, he did not count equality with God, something to hold on to, to grasp, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He's fully God and he's fully man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is our hero. He is the author of our faith. He is the gospel. He is the good news. And I tell you what, Jesus always stood in the truth and he walked in it. He was always on the right side of culture. (laughs) He is always on the right side of his viewpoint about the church is always right. His viewpoint about culture is always right. His viewpoint about sexuality is always right. His viewpoint about politics is always right. And yet he humbled himself and died for us. Because we are so lost, so broken, so fallen. Without his death for us, we would never be right with him. Thanks be to God for Jesus, the hero of our faith, who lived his life for us, died our death that we deserved, and has saved us. Church, let us be wise. Let us walk in the wisdom that is from above. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who shows us this great humility, what wisdom from above looks like. There is no one wiser than Jesus. He literally is the wisdom from above. We thank you that he has saved us from the implications of all of our living from the wisdom that is from below, and we are all guilty, every one of us. Thank you, Father, for your Son. And may your church, even this church, walk in the wisdom that is from above. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.